Jody Brunning, it's wonderful to welcome you on the show. We have something quite urgent, and it's from this government pushing through this endless urgent emergency legislation, they call it. It's called the Severe Weather Emergency Recovery Legislation. What a mouthful. Impossible to remember. We'll talk about this legislation first up. But before we begin on that, I just want you to tell people your qualifications, your background, and your enormous contribution quietly across New Zealand's information sector. What, who are you and what do you do, Jody Brunning? Well, hello. Thanks, Liz. Um, it's great to be here. I'm an Australian who lives in New Zealand. I married a Kiwi. My undergraduate, my first degree is a BBiz in agribusiness. I've grown up in farming families and I've married into a farming family. Then um, a few years ago, I commenced a, an MA, a Master of Arts in Sociology. And um, my interest for a very long time has been the, the science, the policy interface. And so sociology was possibly the one place where I could actually look at how science is produced and made or how it's not made and um, explore that. So I, I became a sociologist and it's, it's great. So my background has been for many, many years has been researching um, environmental chemicals pesticides for a very long time and uh, by looking at glyphosate so glyphosate is is controversial it's controversial because of course there's evidence that it, it causes cancer that it has endocrine disrupting properties but it's controversial because it's a very practical tool for farmers but it's controversial because there's a very enormous amount of money to be made from selling pesticides. And so that's, as, as with my background in agriculture and my interest in um, farming and agricultural resilience, I, I started exploring, you know, glyphosate. So I spent a few, I can talk about that for a little bit if you'd like. I would love to do that after we talk about the legislation. Such richness in that answer because you're looking at how science and policy interact and look at the last few years when we've we've been meant to across this country put scientists on some kind of godlike pedestal and they look at Michael Baker every night on the news Susie Viles they dictate the news you know they dictate the direction of the country to the prime minister it seemed until people started to question and say why are we doing this and is the science faulty um, that science and policy interface I also want to explore with you. Let's begin, though, with science, another branch of the science that a lot of people are questioning, which is climate science, because many Kiwis now, having woken up to the way COVID was used to inculcate fear in the population, are saying, wait a minute, is this client, climate science right? Because I'm seeing the same fear the same fear rhetoric coming from our politician and climate scientists. So let's look at a piece of legislation that was rushed through. How much time for a start were the people given to question it the other day? Well, the government um, press release went up on scoop at 10 o'clock on the 28th. RNZ, I think, posted their, their version of it at about 6 or 7 o'clock on the 28th. And we were given until 5 p.m. on the 29th of March to respond. 
That's extraordinary. So it was rushed through to this this first stage of legislation. Have you ever come across legislation that has such wide-reaching implications for the population of New Zealand that's been hurried through at such a pace before? Well, first and foremost, of course, as as I've just said, I'm not a lawyer. Mm. And my experience, of course, as a non-lawyer is is limited, but we've been submitting to government policy for many years and we've been looking at legislation for many years. So the similar implications would have come from the, the COVID public health response bill in May that was pushed through outside of the public in a very short space of time. And the implications that that came from that bill were the amount of delegated or secondary legislation that could be produced following that. And so this bill has that same problem and it's a real problem. That idea that this this one rushed bill could override a lot of other legislation, including our Bill of Rights, really, because that's what happened with the COVID legislation. Potentially, yes. Mm. And so, so, so again, as a non-lawyer, so it's not not everyone watching this understands all you know this stuff. It's it's a bit tricky, you know. So, so we look at what a bill becomes an act, and that's a statute, that's statutory legislation, and all the other legislation that can be made after this is that outside of parliament is called delegated or secondary legislation. So that can be made, an order can be made by two two ministers meeting in secret, basically in secrecy because you can read the cabinet manual and and they're just meeting with one other member and they can they can decide on an order and an order can be a, a rule uh, a, an instruction whatever but it's 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 enforceable in law and and then the the instructions go from this these small quorum of two or three people to the parliamentary council office council that draft the legislation there's no there's no public scrutiny of this process you know, it's impossible to understand and it happens really swiftly and really quickly. And that's, you know, as a as civil society, I think we actually, if they're sort of weaponising, because by producing legislation that means this huge raft of orders can be produced, that's weaponising the production of law. But they're not increasing the transparency around it. So we need to understand the shift in inc- increasing the government's powers but we don't have the the commensurate shift that means that there's there's massive transparency around this process so it's impossible to do an official information act request because they don't want to answer those and so they'll they'll push it on to other maybe other ministries or whatever because like you said it's broad so associate professor dean knight was he gave me the heads up on twitter so i'm really grateful for that um and he possibly doesn't doesn't want us commenting because he likes to be quite conservative and post lots of pictures of coffee online but occasionally he really does draw attention to government overreach and he does it in a really good way so he put forward this great thread that helped civil society kind of understand the situation and for me looking at the patterns of previous legislation I could quickly respond but most of us don't have that capacity so it, it is such overreach and it's very unfair it's not good process at all. 
It's so opaque. It, you know, we had this Prime Minister Ardern saying, in her time, I'll be the most transparent. They did the opposite. It's been such an upside down world, Jody. They've done the opposite of being transparent and clear with the people. It's a concern because, as you say, the tentacles of this over our lives in future years could be enormous. And I think the way you bridge through your sociology background, you bridge while saying you're not a lawyer, you bridge the the way a, a, a normal member of society who's not involved with the law, who wants to understand what is going on and how these laws are coming in so swiftly and suddenly and surprisingly, you explained that really well. Okay, so what are the, as somebody who's not a lawyer, what are the things that first struck you? And we, we add in here your science background, your concern for the land. What are the things that first horrified you? And again... And this is, you know, this is why I'm very, whenever I write, you know, when we draft anything with the physicians and scientists for global responsibility, for every one word we'd like to write, we write 10, because we're very aware we're writing in a very contested environment. And it's contested because we have very little um, mechanisms, and this is what my master's looked at, mechanisms for the, the production of scientific information that is non-commercial. So science information that can give us this information. But we've also seen the same in law. We're seeing less experts in public law, less experts in ethics. So this is what 30 years of neoliberalism, and we can go into that. I think it's a crucial point we have to unpack now before we go into the legislation itself, and that is this, the, the great corporatization of the world. First, we have the globalization, and then with this whole neoliberalism that we've had since Reagan and Thatcher, the, the corporates and a few corporates at the very top who are inordinately powerful are gobbling up the world. And we only have to look at Bill Gates, his playbook, to see he took over the World Health Organization in terms of being primary funder. WHO declared a pandemic. Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation benefited enormously from the rollout of the vaccines because they were highly invested in vaccines. That, for any basic journalist, if I was teaching journalism 101, I'd say there's your story, where the person promulgating the idea is the same person or group that benefit. You've got some kind of corruption. So we have these corporates who are doing this also potentially with climate change. Yeah, the ancient philosophers could tell us, follow the money. Yes. You know, and follow power. So, so, and we have we we don't just have financial power, but we have political power. And what we've seen since the '80s is massive consolidations and mergers. So it's a classic monopoly game. And this is how you work because you get efficiencies. As I've said before, the role of government is to keep the public safe. So this includes keep us safe in domestically, but also keep us safe from foreign invasion or predation or whatever, but it's also to prevent abuse of power. And so the prevention of abuse of power should entail the limiting and the restriction of duopolistic, oligopolistic or monopolistic power. And this is not happening. And so, you know, if we go to another bill we were looking, I was looking at, um, the Digital Trust Framework Bill. The names are always so long under Labor. The titles it's are ridiculous. so long. Digital <laughs> Identity Trust Services Framework. It's just bill. It's just ridiculous. But there were good people working in Wellington saying to the government, we need to be using our own information, our own systems, our own intelligence to work this out. We don't want to have private information 
managed by contractors to government. And so these, and the problem is these contractors are, are these massive institutions. And the World Economic Forum, it's anti this and anti that. I asked the public that are listening to this, check out, check out the spin-off, do a search for anti and then a hyphen and find out all the ways people can be antis because the spin-off probably does that best. Um, ah, is, is that a positive thing or are you saying that as a negative thing? Do you mean people who are saying I'm anti the World Economic Forum taking over? So or- if you look at uh, rhetoric and propaganda, one of the best ways um, to isolate or to atomize society is through othering. Yes. And and so the anti-hyphen whatever it is, VAX or, you know, EMF or it is a is is a rhetorical device to other that person and shame them and shut yes. them up basically. I mean, Posey Parker was a classic. She came here to talk about women's rights. She was labelled continuously in our mainstream simply as anti-transgender, which was which was blatantly untrue and unfair to the breadth of her views. I get what you're saying. And, and because the nuances don't come through, you know, yeah. so so we understand that there is, there's, there's suffering everywhere, but we need the nuances to come through. There's no way I can earn the same income as my husband, you you know, in 20, <laughs> 2023, you know, or there's there's so many issues like that. You know, I know women in universities and because they leave for a few years to bring up their children, they're not up for the same professorships, even if their citation index is amazing and excellent. But that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a context. You know, I believe there is a space for shared bathrooms. I think it's really important to have shared bathrooms, but I actually think it's really important to have women only bathrooms. And I'm not entering this conversation too much because I'm trying to stick to technology and I'm trying to stick to pollution and talk about those areas, but I have personal feelings about this. That's a, it's beautifully said, Jodie. I think we all want the chance to have subtle, conversations where we hear about other people's lives without being labelled. I mean, I think when I was at court, someone rang and said, Simon Dallow's labelled you a conspiracy theorist. I am so, I'm so not that. Where are the conspiracies? And, and I'm so much more than a label. I am somebody deeply concerned for our world and the direction it's going, as are you, as are now millions of Kiwis. Those labels never capture any of the nuance. Mm. I have... Uh dear friends with trans kids, and I love those kids. They are the coolest. So there's, there's, you know what I mean? So we have no judgment. Yeah. All right. So let's just get back, though, to this idea of, we'll go to the bill, but there is one other thing that's come up for me, Jodi. If you look back to 9-11, that was where the world was suddenly taken. We've talked about the oligarchs, the monopoly, the duopoly, the, the control in fewer and fewer hands. But there's one other part to it. 9-11, we had this emergency legislation. It was the first time we'd really come across this. Across the world, must get all the security going. It's under emergency because there are terrorists, again, them and us. And they saw it worked and they let it sit there while it seeped into our consciousness. Our emergency legislation is sometimes needed. And then they brought it up again for COVID. And now, what, three years later, two years later, here it comes again for climate. You can see they're starting now to try to gouge the democratic rights from the people under emergencies. And we, I believe, as as a population, must say, no, 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 no. There there are things that we can do for our Mother Earth, for the planet, that are better than we're doing. But we don't need this Agenda 2030 constant emergency fight and flight 
fear, panic, manipulation. It is the playbook of tyrants, in in my view, Jody. What do you think? Fear is the playbook of tyrants, you know, and it's an emergency and we have to quickly, we have to, you know, our, our prefrontal cortex has to just go into blurred terror yes. and we will then be obedient, you know, and it's so you've got the other ring, you've got the fear, you've got these classic, classic sort of activities, you know, and, and when we see the biodiversity rhetoric around exclusively around climate, you know, I've looked at so UN papers on the IPBES, I think, papers on biodiversity, and they they only only very delicately talk about the the problem of pollution. So let's talk about non-greenhouse gas, you know, pollution, because apparently the replacement RMA Act doesn't really want to talk about non-greenhouse gas and pollution because the only problem we have in society today is greenhouse gases. And that drives me batty because it keeps all the polluters outside of the narrative and it makes the climate change narrative the preeminent narrative. But the drivers of, for example, the the, the decline of fish in our freshwater, um, of our, our freshwater health, is not climate. Not right now, and I don't know if it ever will be. The quickest, fastest way to kill anything in a water source is to pollute it. But our government hasn't, for 10 years, our government has steered clear of looking at environmental chemicals and demanding that regional uh, environmental, um, regional councils test broadly. So we're talking heavy metals, we're talking um, pesticides, um, pesticides include herbicides, insecticides, then we're looking at other industrial runoffs. So they've really haven't done that, but they've said we can we can test for freshwater health. So we can look at oxygen levels, we can look at um, nutrient levels and, and bacteriological levels, but they're absolutely steering clear of, of chemicals. Isn't that extraordinary? And, and many people are awake now to the power of big pharma, big industrial agri farming. It is not the way our Kiwi farmers really want to go, but they're not being listened to. That is big chemical producers around the world campaigning, hey, we'll give you funding government if you'll if you'll just keep this on the download. There's no way the ag newspapers will 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 discuss glyphosate in any depth when they they have full page, not only full page ads inside the paper, but full page front page, you know, adverts. Mm. So I tried writing. So I became aware that the media wouldn't cover controversial content. And so controversial content for me is content where the science is predominantly supplied by the industry, the commercial industry, whatever that commercial industry is for a technology where this where those are the pro- prominent advertisers or ownership structures you won't you won't get a say so i was writing about so so glyphosate was being applied on fields on paddocks and farmers could go and graze their their stock within a within a few days um so they're grazing the freshly applied glyphosate now glyphosate can sit around for between three and 200 days and the breakdown AMPA metabolite can sit there even longer. They knew in 1992 that glyphosate impaired sperm reproduction. And so by the time I was trying to write in 2015, 
2015, 2014, the amount of information showing that possibly glyphosate impaired fertility and reproduction was quite extensive. So I tried to write in the ag newspapers to say, hey, there's a problem here with your fertility and repro rate if you're putting stock on these pastures. And um, I couldn't get published. So, wow. you know, so and then, and then I tried to get published in stuff. When I found that, so just a, I know we're in glyphosate, but so 2015, the International Agency for Research on Cancer put out their finding that glyphosate probably caused cancer. They're very conservative. They don't move until they're pretty sure it's a real problem. Then the NZEPA did a re review of the, the IAC, the International Agency's um, research. And, said, and well, NZEPA is New Zealand Environmental Protection Authority. Yes. Yes. And the EPA used basically the industry data that was supplied to Europe to refute the IARC's finding. And the IARC had, had looked at open source information. The IARC had, had done a really thorough job. IARC is what, Jody? What's IARC? The, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Oh, right. Okay. IARC. Right. Great. So then, you know, 2016, EPA do this. 2017, together with... Um, then Member of Parliament, Stephen Browning, we wrote a green paper, we wrote a white paper, um, Public Health Concern, talking about the history of glyphosate. Um, we had a ton of scientists come, come on and support us, including Jane Goodall, who was in, in, in town at the same time. And, and that was basically buried by media. They didn't want to touch that. Then the year after, some really eminent public, public health scientists put out a paper um, looking at the carcinogenicity and talking about lost in the weeds. So if you do search for glyphosate lost in the weeds, you'll find that. They were absolutely ignored. They called for a review and, and they were absolutely ignored. So, so that was 2018. Why did they call it lost in the weeds, Jody? Why did because they say the EPA just has no idea. You know, they, they 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 seem to have no idea about what really is happening in the science, and the, and then they used a retired toxicologist. They pulled in someone from you know that that was retired to do the work and peer reviewed wow. it internally. So so you know, I do understand that New Zealand is not going to move on glyphosate until Europe moves. Because Europe tends to be the first to move. It's tragic you saying that, Jody. Let's just stop there for a moment. We put ourselves up to the world as clean and green. And if yeah. that is being eaten within three days on grass by cows, we know that milk, um, a mother's milk, holds, can hold toxins. So the milk that we drink could hold these toxic residues. I am that. aware that since then, there's been a bit of a pullback and farmers basically have to declare it. But the problem is farmers really might not know whether that silage or whether that product that they're buying in has been dried down. So it was not only them spraying their own paddocks, like they would spray maybe 15% of the paddock and, and redrill. They might be importing in or getting in lucerne or that's been sprayed. But, of course, we don't have the scientific monitoring infrastructure to assure scientists of this and then they might be buying all oil seeds in you know um distilled oil seeds from australia that have been sprayed too so jody i also want to stop you there because as if for those who are going oh well it's just a bit of spray i mean i've stopped people on the street council workers and said you're spraying 
Roundup, aren't you? That's glyphosate. That is extremely dangerous. You've got nothing on your legs, no cover on your mouth. You could get cancer from this. And they go, no, 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 we were told it was organic. For someone who's dismissing it, oh, it's safe. I've used it for years. Don't, don't forget there is a financial implication, is there not, Jody? Because if China finds residues of glyphosate in the products we send to China, that could really impact the the extractive, you know, um, yeah, so, exporting that we do to China. It could have implications for farming. Well, well, China's China could turn around one day. Japan already has sent shipments of honey back that were contaminated, so that's a real world issue. Um, in town, if they're claiming that it's just organic, maybe it is. Um, we don't know. This is a problem we don't know. And what I do know is that glyphosate is rarely sprayed by itself. So, you know, it'll be sprayed with some, you know, metsulfuron methyl. It'll be sprayed with other chemicals to, to increase the formulation toxicity because, you know, glyphosate works by one pathway and other pesticides or herbicides work by different pathways. So they're trying to get this toxic mix that means that there's no resistance because all of these herbicides drive resistance. Um, And so that's even more of a discussion on glyphosate because the EPA has formally said that glyphosate helps with herbicide resistance because all the orchardists told them that. I need to clarify, what's your meaning of organic? Because when I say organic, it means spray-free, free of chemical residues. What's your meaning when I use that word? So if we're going to talk about the organics industry, they do use a very, very narrow margin of cidal agents, but they're um, magnitude of orders less toxic than your conventional herbicides and pesticides. And or if they are of the same toxicity, for example, if they're using copper, they will use a much, 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 much weaker formulation. Mm. So that and, and it's very strictly regulated. Whereas when we have that mixture, for example, spraying along the school side of the road before the kids walk to school, of glyphosate, metsulfuron, methyl, some some other, you know, um, adjuvants to make it even more toxic and the kids are walking along the day after. I, they spray where I live. I, I saw the, the herbicide spray around the school bus shelter. Oh, it's heartbreaking. The ignorance is there, but the ignorance is perpetuated by the Environmental Protection Agency because every, every person that goes and submits to council, councillors go back to managers and the managers say, no, no, the EPA, so it says it's fine. But, of course, the EPA, the public of New Zealand need to understand that the EPA, the New Zealand Environmental Protection Authority, has never formally risk assessed glyphosate ever. And then they turn around and and dismiss the IAC finding. Okay, and CIDL, if you you give me terms, I don't know, I'm going to go in there. Like CIDL is, is, CIDL is a sort of a killing agent. All right. There's Jody, I think we're going to have to turn this into a series of interviews because there are so many little mini wonderful conversations here, but this is all important because the actual arc of this introductory part while we've been teasing the legislation itself is the corruption of our governments, our agencies, the corruption of big complexes from overseas coming into New Zealand and Kiwis need to wake up to this. So I feel that's the background to this COVID emergency, this climate emergency legislation. So so the severe weather emergency recovery legislation, Mm. the, the biggest, just most crazy weird gap in it for me 
was the failure to talk about water in any way. So the severe emergency recovery legislation, for example, like I grew up in Australia where one of the most famous poems talks about droughts and flooding rains. You know, we, we, we live in worlds where we do have a flood one year and a drought another year. And, yes, these events can increase um, depending on many, 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 many factors. So New Zealand is now having floods and we have droughts. We've had a drought in the and South Island. we always Island. have had. So, But I'm not going to go into this area mm. too deeply because I... Ian Wishart will talk to you until he's blue in the face, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so we can look at this severe weather bill. Droughts aren't going to be an issue because droughts are a slow event. It, it, farmers need support getting through droughts. They need support so that our, our, our farmers do not go out of business and that so that they don't do stuff to take shortcuts because they've got no money that then causes more harm. But the big issue with one of these events is a massive storm event. What happens when there is a storm event? Yet water was never once mentioned in that bill and that kind of stuns me. Like if I'm not mistaken, water is not mentioned. So one of the biggest problems happens is when water is in in a big, you know, we have this freak storm event. So what happens is you might have, you know, the forestry slash moved, you might have bridges broken, roads broken, but what it will also do, it will, it will redistribute toxic chemicals, toxic heavy metals and, and bacteria. And, and so one of the biggest biggest issues in one of these events for the safety of the public is what is happening to the water source that goes into the drinking water and what is happening to the drinking water. How do the public access safe water? How do they keep safe? How does the stock not get contaminated because if, for example, the storm event has dislodged someone's backyard pesticide um, or an industrial, you know, site's toxic chemicals. So this is one of the big mysteries of Hawke's Bay. This is a really big concern, but there are no, and this is what I put in my um, submission because it was a massive gap. We need already in place at very high levels. So, again, the statute is the locked-in rules that set the principles in place. So we need very high level, particular agencies that have power that will be independent and outside the politics of the government of the day. So that's why I suggested that, for example, the ESR, which is a, um, I think it's a Crown Research Institute, if I'm not, or, or, or an authority, um, there's so many of them. And so they, um, they're, they're sort of responsible for doing a lot of testing. It's all limited because, of course, it's all everything's got to balance the budget. Um, So they've had limited funds. They are drip-fed funding for particular, like, for example, the groundwater survey, but they've been doing a very good job on that. So they could actually get a tranche of money given to them to support, first of all, building up their their knowledge to understand mixture effects, toxicity of mixtures for such a freak storm event so that when the storm event comes, they've got the knowledge in terms of the instrumentation, the equipment in the laboratory, because we don't actually have that. So, so in when, when scientists want to test serum for particular contaminants, they have to send it overseas because our commercial laboratories only test the commercial stuff that everyone wants to pay for. So we don't have that intelligence. We don't have that scientific expertise. We don't have that knowledge in New Zealand. So we need to build that up. That's shocking. I did not realise that. ESR is Environmental and Scientific Research, is that? Yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah. 
In terms of the need for some kind of legislation to take care of these events that come up, um, weather events, is there a place for some legislation? Could one argue it is appropriate in some measure without this emergency, rather sinister tone to it? What would you say to that? Well, of, of course. You know, we need to be we need to be able to be responsive, intelligent, and and we need to understand. We need, but we need to set the principles in place at high level. And principles, you know, so any parent understands they have principles that they abide by when they're bringing up their kid. Their principle is, you know, that maybe they'll they'll only smack them when they're about to run out out on a road, or they'll never smack them. Or the principle is they want to make sure that they only have really healthy meals. And the, and principles are a sort of belief over writing belief or uh, ethical management systems. I like the principle uh, you teach your children to tell the truth. I think a lot of our politicians yes. could have done with that parenting principle. Well, yes, and so we have princi principles of constitutional and administrative law, and there's a big fat book by Philip Joseph, a professor down at Canterbury. And I really consider that most officials and elected members aren't aware of the importance of this and so what happens then is we, we have this pervasive ignorance I actually I actually believe it should be a um a policy for the rebel rousers to um put through that that any new um official or elected elected member or official over like a certain level in government or you know should actually go through a, a three-day course to help them understand what principles are so that so what happens then is because there, there's this pervasive ignorance about the high level principles that then are put in place at the very top of the legis of the statute of the formal legislation and that then should guide all the legislation that is produced after that all the delegated secondary legislation but we don't see that happening so the idea of how do you protect public health well, maybe using the latest science, you could do biomarker testing to understand if, if people are exposed to a broad range of chemical mixtures and if this is harm. That would be the latest science. But in New Zealand, in Aotearoa today, we don't have that principle. We don't, we, we don't have this capacity to follow that principle and use the latest science. That's disaggregated. So... I believe we we could have this science um, in in place. Oh, sorry, this legislation in place. But because of the ignorance that I think is there, we we have this incapacity to contest whatever the parliamentary council office puts through to really meaningfully say actually this is this is not good. So so and I think this is a function of Labor's massive, this re ream after ream to so much legislation that the MPs, even the ones that really would like to contest this, are overwhelmed and they don't want to risk being um, shamed or, or told they're ignorant by making a wrong step. So that helps the drafters move even more quickly. It helps the, those narrow ministers hidden away in Cabinet move even more quickly. So I think we have this situation where we're not able to step back and say, slow down, make it really simple, make it really elegant and, and, and have that finesse in the legislation that is being drafted. Oh, Jodie, it's 
It's you imagine if the people who are paid supposedly to take this country in good directions in our parliament can't even keep up. How could the average mum and dad with children and jobs and worry about mortgage and rising interest rates, how could they possibly be aware? And then it starts to look again. It gives a sinister air to a government that is overwhelming its population with legislation it cannot keep abreast of. I, I don't think that's good governance. Well, it's it's it doesn't con conform to principles of transparency and accountability, and I don't think it is a representative democracy because I believe all the principles, all the the promises that this Labor government was elected in for, I think it's very doubtful that they've done 10% of it, but then they've done 90% of what they've done has completely been off outside all those promises that they were elected for. So I do not believe we have representative democracy in New Zealand. At the well, we only have to look at three waters in co-governance. People, those, those did penetrate into our mainstream media, which is doing such a shoddy job of putting the government on the blocks and saying you're going to be cross-examined on this legislation. But three waters and co-governance really penetrated and people around the country were going, this is horrifying. This was not campaigned on. This is crucial. Let's get back now to our severe weather emergency recovery legislation, even the title. Wait till they're all in Māori. That's what they'll do soon. They'll translate it all in Māori and then we we really will feel shut out. So oh, and can people. I have a quick talk about that? Because then I don't want to... I want to ex express what I consider is being how Māori are being let down as well. So if you look at the health and the, the life of water, the health and the life of water, water doesn't get killed, if you can put it in, in that way, it doesn't get killed and harmed by just one chemical exposure. Water becomes damaged when there is a so there's it's called PBT persistence, bioaccumulation, and toxicity. When you have the combination of persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic um, exposures in that water environment, that then harms water. So what we see in this legislation is we see legislation that I believe fails to abide by the principles of Tetiriti o Watangi as well. So the government will put in beautiful thought speak. This has to be Mataranga Māori, but they ignore the application of science that absolutely, can I just say, absolutely harmonises with and that balances traditional Māori knowledge. So they're keeping the modern, high-level, really sophisticated technology and knowledge out of these sorts of um, bills or the principles that would guide or permit such knowledge to come in. And so we're seeing this kind of the government trying to hide all that, but the, the Māori I have worked with and communicated with when it comes to water are fantastic and they're gritty and they understand how pollution is being ignored and hidden by the government. So so I just I just want to put that, in, you know, put that there because I think it's really important. And I have similar impressions when it comes to, say, for example, you know, um, low-income Māori and non-Māori being failed by policy as well. So my, my ground zero is, is the quality of water and the health of our children. So that's what informs my work. Point we all become, don't we, Kiwis, 
Māori, non-Māori. We are people, we are humans, we are Kiwis. We all want the same thing. We don't want the few at the top of Māoridom or of the government or of the world industrial complexes to benefit while the rest of us languish. I remember working with Panya Newton from Ihumatau, Jodi, when before that story broke, when they, she saved that land by the Auckland airport. But she was explaining how crucial it is for them to always begin by acknowledging their, their mountain, their chief, and then their moana, their sea, and then their awa, the river. These are their ancestors. They totally understand, as, as we all do, we must honour our earth, but not this way. What else in this legislation, severe weather emergency recovery legislation, what else worried you? And, and again, for me, it was what less than sort of 24 hours to put in yeah. submissions. This is ridiculous. But what worried you? Associate Professor Dean Knight brought that to my attention was the, the orders, the potential for the orders, and it covers so many other acts. So this legislation has the potential to change and alter just dozens of other acts. So this overnight legislation, because it is overnight legislation, can, can alter dozens of other acts and it's all delegated, it all can be done, you know, basically out of the public eye. And then um, Dean Knight also pointed out that it's quite a long time. Now, I'm sorry, I did it two days ago and I've been working on it. So what they're doing is they're putting in these emergencies for much longer than they need to. So they're, they're, they're absolutely increasing their powers out of, out of sight and then, and then increasing the length of time those powers apply for. Um, so I think that's a that's a really massive problem. Even uh, trying my hardest to find the argument on the other side for that, Jody, as a journalist, I can't find it. When people sent their submission in, they had to give their oral presentation the very next day. Did you give an oral presentation no. yesterday? I, I consider this as performance. I, I, I honestly... Again, I'm not a lawyer, but this to me is 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 performance. There's no um, there's no integrity in this work, and I I just see myself as just another person flailing against these MPs that themselves kind of just think they've got to get the job done, and they they they're automatons. They're just doing the job. They're getting the job done. They're signing the legislation, and um, and that's how you know. <laughs> how democracy is lost, but I knew that, I, and I didn't even know it would be the next day. Like, it's just. So, Jody, when you use the word performance, you mean it's theatre, it's tokenism. Yes. It's saying, look, we listened, but we don't listen because nothing changes. They drive it through like a tractor driving through an enormous pile of soil. And that's how they're regarding us, as if they can just put their boots on us and stomp forward. What can we do, Jodie? What can the people do? So if you look through it, the, the legislation that's been passed even in the last year, um, and then you go and look on stuff or New Zealand Herald or Newsroom or RNZ or any of the accredited legacy media, you will never, ever find a meaningful, critical, long-form discussion that is truly informative and in the public interest. If you look on TVNZ, you will never find a 30-minute, a one-hour documentary piece that where a panel discussion is being held to argue the merits of the case. So going back to the, the, the issue that 
we have, you know, government is composed of the judiciary, the administrative, and then the elected members parliament. So that's the three estates of government. The media is, of course, the fourth estate. And, and the media is there as, to hold power to account. Now, going back to the mergers and acquisitions, when, when the baby boomers were kids, most of the media was owned locally. So that's one difference. And the other difference is the media, in, the income to that local paper came from, it came from a couple of, a few big advertisers locally, maybe the, you know, the fuel supplier, you know, the local hardware, local land agent or something yes. like that. But then they had like a ton of small ads, you know, and those small ads, the classifieds were a big part of, of the paper's income. But what that also meant is they had this secure income base where they could actually then if they wanted, criticise the government or criticise policy because they, they kind of had this, this portfolio of income coming that wasn't just one or two big providers. So that ownership structure, as you are pointing out, is massively different. And then we know, as you've talked about extensively, that the, the media in New Zealand over COVID-19 event were... They were given funding to, to keep their heads above water and then they were given extensive advertising money. And, and so the New Zealand media has been in, sort of in an impoverished state for a good decade. So this was the first time in a decade where the managers could go, oh, my God, I don't have to worry about paying my staff. It was really simple. They, they, they had financial security for the first time in a decade, but that shut them up. And so my experience from the glyphosate is that the media wouldn't cover glyphosate. So I, so I sent in uh, an, an op-ed talking about the fact that the New Zealand EPA's um, committee decide to decide if there was new information so following going back to the IR, the cancer finding, if they had ever met to discuss this new information, which they're required to meet and discuss by law, they'd never met to discuss that new information, nor the $7 billion in court, court cases that have followed. And they said to me, oh, no, no, we, we talked about glyphosate eight weeks ago, so we're not going to talk about this now. We don't want this to be published now. So I, I was aware that I would not be published in mainstream media over the COVID-19 event, so I didn't even try. And so, but for many people, and I know, I know scientists that deliberately don't even try and write in New Zealand media anymore because they're not writing their, their work concerns um, off target or adverse events, including relating to pollution technology or whatever. So they know they, that New Zealand won't, their media is, they might put in a submission, they might not get published, but they might not find out for a week or two and then the, the time has passed. And so they've given up. So we need a new media. Yes. So I'm really happy to know that you're here. I'm, you know, really happy to know Reality Check Radio is here. I think the platform has done some good work and I urge them to, to be brave. Um, so we have many new forms that we have um, coronavirus plushie, you know, so we and have. And Counterspin some, have done really brave work. Yeah, and Counterspin really are doing brave. good work, you know. And I think that that capturing of Marama Davidson by Hannah the other day was extraordinary journalism to the point where we now see a parliamentarian. We know she's lying. They know we know she's lying. We know they know 
we know she's lying. It goes on and on, Jodie. You know, we all know that's a lie that she's telling, an absolute lie. Yeah, and and uh, and I'm not far right. I I actually resigned Same. my Green Party membership two years ago because I couldn't talk about technology critically. <laughs> I so, was a big fan of Bernie and you know AOC in America until I woke up. Nice, none of us are far right. None of us are conspiracy theorists. We are just humans saying something is not right. Something yeah. is not right. And again, that's a rhetorical device. We're starting to really see those patterns mm. where over and over again, the person that is the, the, the that is contesting power, that is contesting something that is seen as not right by that person is very quickly pictured and polarized as far right. And and we know that there's other ways that person can also be encouraged to be presented like that so we it, it's liminal you know it's very liminal we have to be very cautious about it's that. just a way to intimidate someone into silence to try to stop whistleblowers telling the truth to it calls on each of us to be inordinately courageous but as we each are more and more kiwis feel oh you're courageous jody so i'll be courageous you know it is like a candle lighting another candle lighting another candle that's how i've got through it but it's abusive it's deeply unjust you know, and I can't respect Sean Plunkett, what he's done on the platform to me, but I can see some interviews are good and I have to get past for the good of the whole. I have to get past the pettiness that I see in some of these groups on our side, very petty, but you have to say, let it go and think of winning back our country from the corruptions. That is the only goal that matters, Jody. And the hardest, I think the hardest thing is as humans, when we perceive an injustice, and I, I sort of maybe we could finish on this, when we perceive an injustice, mm. it makes us angry. So I had my, when I started understanding the way the chemical companies controlled the science around glyphosate, the way the WHO uses 20, 30-year-old chemical Monsanto industry science to say this is the level of glyphosate in water, I was really angry. And so I would be sitting, you know, at dinner with people and, and they're like, oh, you know, Jodie's a bit angry these days. And so I've kind of got through that time and so I can now sort of laugh in a very ironic way to, and communicate it in a non-angry way. But the hardest thing for us in media when we perceive these injustices is not being angry and of course you're you're being so courageous Liz because you are in front of this camera all the time so the camera is going to document everything you do and you're working in this open-ended world where we're trying to understand what's happening mm. you know and we're in a world where Kiwis they want beautiful warm dry house they want to be able to see a tree wherever they live so that they can breathe properly they want safe and nutritious food so all the all they, they want clean drinking water Joni. and clean, clean drinking, drinking water, water. Mm. And, and we see very little in all this all these bills and legislation that are addressing how we keep humans safe because we're the same genes as we were you know a million years ago you know 
200,000 years ago. So our, our level of chronic illness and our disability is a function of the environment that we live in. The increased illnesses in our children is a function of the environment we live in, but we do not see government legislation addressing these issues. The legislation is simply there to introduce new technology you know, and so we are going to be angry because it's happening so quickly and so rapidly. So we need these new media. We need to support this new media and we need to as courageously as we can share this media and share this information with people that are on the fence, with people that that grew up possibly in that 1950s and 60s world where the media actually was much more trustworthy than it is today because it wasn't financially compromised and owned by offshore corporations with political and financial conflicts of interest. Gosh, you you articulated that whole arc of information so beautifully, Jodie. A couple of things arise. Um, I would love to do ongoing conversations with you. I think we should do a Jodie Brunning series because even in today's conversation, we had so many little side, beautiful, rich side alleys we went down and then had to come back to warn people to look at this severe weather emergency recovery legislation, which will need to be resisted by our population. It will. I think we all need to turn up to our local MPs, remind them, you are on the plinth now, this is coming up to an election. I will not vote for you if you support this piece of emergency legislation that has such extreme implications for other pieces of legislation. We need to tell our local MPs, don't we? And I, I also think we need to understand that there might be other people in our voting regions that might be looking to replace the MPs yes. that have not had the temerity, have not been able to step back and say, actually, no, we don't need to, we don't need to rush this legislation through right now. We can take time. We can speak to the public. Max Rashbrook has talked a lot about participatory governments. We can we can slow down. And, and, and are there other people that might be coming up for this election that say, no, actually, I'm going to reverse this legislation because I don't think it is safe and I don't think it will be effective. <laughs> so, brilliant. so I think we need to start thinking about who else is out there that can speak to this and that people enjoy hearing from and, <clears throat> and can we work together um, to start challenging what is definitely a status quo. That's brilliant. I don't think any of the 120 is worthy of being voted in again after not one of them spoke to the people in Freedom Village. That showed, they showed us we all lack courage to stand up to the hierarchy in Parliament who are bullying us. Not one had the courage that we need in our parliamentarians. But secondly, I think let's support Democracy New Zealand. Let's support Outdoor and Freedoms Party. Let's vote them in rather than National or and Labour. And all the, the other minor old. parties. So and all the other minors. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, so we need to understand that how do we support a, a new way of thinking or a, a different, because I, I really, I wish, you know, like I was a Green Party member for years. I wish they were in a different space to where they are right now. And ACT, you know, ACT goes on very interesting tangents sometimes. So I, I sort, of, sort of think we need to be challenging 
the, the MPs that are currently in Parliament, and that is a pro-democracy statement of mine. Um, so that is supporting democracy and that is supporting the, the, the participatory involvement of civil society in making sure that policy is um, not only protecting the public interest, but it's preventing abuse of power. You're such a deep thinker, Jodie. I'd like you to think perhaps for our next conversation. An idea a friend said yesterday, he said, it's done. The system is done. We can bang our heads as much as we like on this concrete ceiling. But beyond that, this system is, is showing itself as creaky, as corrupt, as broken, as lying, as not serving the people. I think if we can get enough people in here who are decent, we can point to a new way which must be built on what we've done today, wide and broad and open discussion. At no point did you or I say, oh, Jody, you can't talk about that. You didn't say, oh, Liz, you can't mention that. We must listen to one another. How we will rebuild this country is something I'd like to follow up with next week if you're open. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of even even academics that are inside the system that would love to be writing policy and supporting new ways of thinking because they they understand. So it's not just civil society out there. I think there are people inside the system that are chomping on the bit because they know that the, the scientific evidence, they know, know the social science, they know what we can do and how we can change it. So thank you. Honestly, thank you so much for this conversation, Liz. It's been a delight, Jody. We'll talk to you next week and people will come to know Jody Bruning, one of our national treasures. That's how I regard you. We need to get you out there and I hope many of the other channels also pick up and get you on there as well. Thank you, Jody. Thank you.